Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thanks for downloading episode three of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you want to contact us, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. Coming up, we talk to the current Phantom of the Opera, Ben Forrester. Ben shot to fame winning the role of Jesus on Andrew Lloyd Webber's TV talent show, Superstar. Rob, you were in the World Arena Tour of Jesus Christ Superstar with him. Yeah, uh, and before playing the Phantom... Ben was the lead in Elf the Musical. So just before Christmas, we popped down to the Dominion Theatre and chatted to Ben in his big, plush dressing room. And here's the chat. This is Ben Forster, and you're listening to Inside the West End. So we're currently inside your dressing room at the Dominion Theatre. We are, yes. Backstage where you're currently playing Buddy the Elf. Yeah. How's it going? It's really good. Um, It's... It's quite a difficult job. It's um, it demands quite a lot from me physically and mentally and all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm absolutely loving it. I wouldn't change anything for the world. Your dressing room is stunning. Let me just talk through an audio description of your room. So okay. you've got a lovely little lounge that you first walk into. Two nice sofas, little coffee machine. Yes. And you come into the far end of the room, which is where we're in now, where your mirror is, where your makeup, yeah, um, bits of costume, and you've got your own little uh, bathroom in there as well. Oh yeah, well you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. It's not nice sharing a bathroom, is it? It is quite theatrical. I didn't, I didn't uh, design it. I think it's just been like a mixture of every stagey person that's ever had the room. And who's winning the competition between you and Kimberly Walsh for the biggest dressing room? Oh, me, darling, number one. <laughs> so <laughs> Ben, with you, it's easy to think. And it's probably a, a common misconception that since winning Superstar, you've had this career um, handed to you on a plate. But that's 100%. It couldn't be further from the truth. Before that moment, you'd been working for like 15 years, your, your career you. developing it for a long time. So we're going to take you right back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell Absolutely. us about you as a child. Um, I was probably, I was attracted and liked all the kind of outcasts. So growing up in sort of 1980 Sunderland, um, it was it was quite a weird time. It was I, ho- I was always friends with like the girls, and um, I never played football. Um, and also in nineteen in the late nineteen seventies, sort of all um, there was a big migration from like Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, they all became my friends, and I went to all their weddings and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of the unusual kid as well. I was really into performing and singing, and not many boys at that in that era of that place would have got up and sang the song or went, you know, done all those sort of things that people would think were too, uh, weren't right to do, really, for a, for a little kid. What about um, your family, your parents? Like, what, what kind of... Well, my, my dad was a plumber and my mum was a, a youth worker. Um, so I was from, like, a really uh, working-class background. Um, but my sister was a dancer and I think that's kind of where... That's what ignited it in me, was kind of seeing her every Saturday going to dance school uh, and doing all the pantomimes and shows at the the Empire because I could see her she was someone I looked up to even when I was 
six, she was 10. So she was like, you know, much more of a grown up kid than I was. Um, we started Amateur Dramatic Society before Abbey, really. And I was just kind of there, taken, taken there every week and just somehow dragged in and, and joined in. And I remember singing my first solo at one of those Amateur Dramatic Society things, which was um, Zippity Doodah. And I was five. So I was, I was really young to do that in front of, you know, a couple of hundred people. Is that your earliest memory, performing? Yeah, performing in, probably performing with my cousins when you, like, make up plays and yeah. do stuff. But that was the first public thing that I'd done in front of everyone. And I remember everyone clapping and being like, wow. And then coming off and everyone like, you did so good. You did so good. And that, I think that's the addictive thing about performing. I don't actually know whether loads of performers just love performing or just love the, the could have been, they've grown up being applauded and I think it's quite an addictive thing but I think some people when you get to stage school and it's filled with 50 people in a year you know that all 50 people aren't going to make it I think a lot of them people are just the ones that kind of got the applause and thought that was really great and I think they're addicted to it and they don't really love it or they don't really want it because you just keep fighting for it if you do I mean obviously luck comes into it a lot um, and I do feel like I've got a lucky life I always feel like there's someone looking over me or watching over me um, but I've definitely worked hard and I've definitely made decisions, good and bad. I went through a whole phase of just turning everything down because it wasn't, I wasn't, like, being the lead. But I was only, like, 22 or 23. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not doing first cover in Lemmy's and I'm not doing first cover in this new Andrew Lloyd Webber musical and I'm not doing... Because I was just young. If ever anyone was interested or asked my opinion about what they should do, I think you should kind of take every opportunity and adventure... And I was always looking maybe too big, I think, at that point in my career. I was kind of thinking, well, I've been duty in Greece, so I want to be now a bigger part than duty in Greece. And actually, it's a bit stupid. You should just carry on meeting new people and working in new casts and working with new directors and, and stuff like that, probably. What about uh, when you turn around to your parents and you're taking a big interest in performing and they're obviously being very encouraging? With their philosophy in general about performing, were they happy to encourage that? Obviously, with your sister, they were. I think that they just wanted me to be doing something that I loved, and I don't think they ever really thought that it was going to be a profession. I think they just thought that it was my hobby, and they always helped me. You know, I had an amazing teacher, a teacher at comprehensive school as well, um, Mrs. Bennett, and I think her support and my parents' support, I think she kind of introduced me to the fact that it could be my life. If you ask my mum and dad, they would say, we thought you were going to be a marine biologist or a cameraman, wild, uh, a wildlife cameraman. Or I'm not really that academic. I wasn't really great at English. I wasn't great at science. Uh, I was horrendous at language. I mean, I, I just can't speak anything. I don't think I could ever like have been a barrister or a doctor or something. Silence. I don't know. Maybe, it's, maybe it is the schools I went to and you know, I was brought up in working class Sunderland and you know, if I'd have went to a grammar school or I'd been pushed in different directions, but I was allowed to flourish in other directions, which have actually really shaped my life. And there were all the creative ones. I left school and said, right, I want to go to stage school and I want to move to London. And my mum said, well, maybe you should try and get a career going before you do that. And in the local paper, there was like a advert for a trainee graphic designer, like an apprenticeship. And I went for an interview and got it. And... God bless him, there was this guy in the office called Sid, who was the office manager, kind of hated his job, hated his life. And he'd worked there for 40 years. And at the time I was 16 and I was like, I can't believe that every day that shaped me and every day I've built and every day I've grown and experienced these amazing things, he's been in this office. 
And I went home and I was like, I don't want to do the two years. I don't want to be a graphic designer. I want to go to London now and I'm going to, I'm going to apply now. My mum was like, okay. So I think she just wanted me to know that I'd thought about it and I'd looked and I'd, uh, I'd took inspiration from, you know, the situation I was in and been like, no, this is definitely what I want now. It's amazing when you can identify those literally light bulb moments. Like, oh, yeah. You, do you like, do you go with your gut a lot? I completely follow my yeah. gut. And I've used that kind of... Instinct. Instinct yeah. for my whole life, really. Yeah. Um, you know, the next big challenge, I suppose, for me as a 16-year-old, my parents' house was worth £3,000. My fees were 30 So there was just nowhere that I was going to get to to London. And really. in terms of literally getting to London, mm. is there a story or something about your, somebody paying for your travel or something? There is, actually. Very good research. It was, um, there was money raised from everywhere. You know, the local paper helped. I was getting sponsorships from local businesses. I was writing letters to loads of people. But most of the money came from, you know, like my mate Gareth, who I'm still friends with. At the time, he turned around and went, I've been saving all summer, but you can have my 300 quid. And he was like 20. And he was like, that's my three, that's what all my money I've been saving this summer, but I want you to go to London. I mean, I used to earn 30 pounds a week being a graphic designer. Do you consider that ever now? As in when you were about to go on stage or when you're in rehearsals and you're tired, do you ever have to look back to that or think back to that and go... Yeah, um, a lot of times, I know it's said and it's kind of paralleled all the time that it's like a real-life Billy Elliot story, but it really is. Just, I mean, apart from the my mum is alive, thank God, and healthy and happy, it's the only difference. I mean, it's the same era, it's the same time, the same friend I had when I was little that used to be like I'll show you'd be funny if you do this you know <laughs> like it's just like there's so many what about, what about then the relationship between his father my dad was always really supportive he's, he's one of ten uh, he's got two sisters and eight brothers and I was definitely brought up in a really masculine place you know I, I was sent to karate you know to kind of toughen me up and I think that he was held back as a kid my dad and um, like there was places and things that he would have done with his life that he just couldn't because he was one of 10 kids he was always never a priority and I think that he wanted me to feel like a priority and um, so you come down to London you start training do you feel liberated do you feel what do you feel the, the thing that dawned on me coming to London was um, that I was finally in a room with people that just felt the same as me that thought the same things, that liked the same things, that wanted to do the same things. And it was, I'd never had that. You know, apart from, you know, the four, my four friends at Comprehensive School I was always in the shows with, you know, but it was girls. And I was made fun of because I hung out with the girls. I never had a, a, a guy to hang out with that just felt the same as me, ever. I lived with my auntie um, up in North London. She's dead now, but she was a real character. She was really naughty. She was called Ina, but she called herself Vaj. <laughs> because she was called Ina and that's the kind of woman she was and I lived with her for the first two months I fitted in fabulously we had a lovely time but I think my mum and dad got that I wanted to be in the environment the in whole the time in the bubble and after two months they moved me into the YMCA I used to go out I, I remember on days of college just going and by, being by myself walking like through Piccadilly Circus walking through Hyde Park and being like I live in London it's amazing I can walk everywhere and like I don't know there was just so many things that excited me about the whole of London and of course that period is documented in that period at Italia Conti mm. on a BBC documentary yeah. called The Dream Academy yeah they focus on you do you know why they picked you did, they, did you have to audition for it you know what I'll be honest with you you know when you said about it's funny how you can pick out the moments of 
that have really changed that changed something. I think it's the first time I learnt to stand out from a crowd and use what I've got to get attention without being annoying. I think it was the first time I figured that out, and it's an amazing lesson if you can learn it because it means that you can you can always draw focus in a group of people, and I think that's the first time I ever learned that because I was Gary Lloyd, who is the uh, West End director now. He was a teacher at my college, and um, he had a casting for the third year show that needed a few more dancers, and I'm not a dancer at all. And he was a really, like, funky choreographer. To give people a flavour of who you're talking about, Gary choreographed Thriller. Right. It's one of them moments where you go, do I sink or swim? I'm here, everyone's believed in me, you know, my mate Gareth gave me £300, Ian gave me £100, you know, all these people have got me there and I should go into this audition and I didn't want to but I did and I think he just saw my determination and was a terrible dancer but he cast me in it and that decision of standing in the doorway deciding whether or not I should push myself got me into the room when the BBC came in and that's when I sort of thought and I knew that this one was important I don't know why but she walked down and she was taking notes and I was like you need, I need to talk to you. I need to, you need to know who I am. I don't know why it was, but I, it was the first time I've ever felt it. And I just remember following this woman with my eyes until she caught my eyes and smiling and then doing something. And then I remember going up to her and saying, oh, what, why are you here? You know, and just being really forward, which I'm not actually in my personality. I'm not that person. And she said, oh, I'm here to do a pilot for a BBC documentary. And I said, let me take you on a tour get the camera out and I'll take you on a tour. I don't know where this came from because this is not me and it's not my personality. But sometimes you just have to follow your, inst- your instinct and I did. And actually the, the pilot was completely ended up being about me and then the made the TV show which ended up really being focusing on me and a few other stories. And it, I just think there's moments in your life where you've got to go, I need to go through the door. I didn't want to go through the audition door and I didn't want to dance. I looked stupid. But that's... You all, the only thing you can do as a performer is never feel stupid. You can fly then. There's a few moments that I want to speak to you about. Oh, no. Your parents appear on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about remortgaging the house to pay mm-hmm. for your Which training. Did, yeah. There's a phenomenally moving moment in it when your parents are talking about that and the, the person leading the interview is, is trying to push them to say mm-hmm. what a big sacrifice that was. And your dad turns around and basically says, well, no, actually... For me, the biggest sacrifice was losing Ben. Yeah. And I really miss him. And then yeah. he starts crying. Yeah. It, it's incredibly moving. The other one is a quote from your dad. And he says these words. I just want to see my son in a West End show. Give him a standing ovation and say, that's my boy. Yeah. And it's now I'm sitting in your dressing room at the Dominion Theatre. And you're yeah. about to do a two and a half hour musical where you do not leave the stage. Aside from that, your dad has stood in the O2 arena. Yeah. With 15,000 other people. He has, yeah. No, that's... But that's something that makes me happy, like, every day. I was thinking about this the other day. My... A really close friend of mine just lost her mum. And she lost her dad a few uh, years earlier. And she said to me, I don't... I just don't know what my... I don't know what the point is. I've got all this good news. And I've got no one to ring up and go... I got this job, or I did this. And actually, that's what I do. I think a lot of the reason why I do everything is just to kind of make them proud and that they made the right decision about remortgaging the house and selling the car. The other moments that stand out on that documentary, yeah. <laughs> to, keep, to, to lighten the mood a yeah. little from a, from a very moving moment, um, 
Your audition for Lem is. Oh, God. It shows you beforehand walking up Charing Cross Road, excited. You're talking about how, what a big deal it is. It's Lem is mm. in the West End. Do you remember it clearly? Lem is was my first audition. You know, looking back, I know exactly why I messed up. And actually, if you watch it, you can see where I do forget my words. And I remember the exact moment because it filled me with terror. But I remember seeing a reflection of a camera lens looking at me. And I remember thinking, oh my God, millions of people are going to watch this. And that's when I slipped my words. And actually it was the pressure of waiting for an hour to go into my audition because they were getting cameras ready and all that kind of stuff. I, my life plan wasn't to start out in Les Mis. It just wasn't. Yeah. It was to start off in La Cava, which was the first job you see in that documentary. And right where I was sitting now, I'm being paid by the same man that gave me the first job in La Cava. It's Michael Rawls. The producer of Elf is the producer of La Cava. So, you know, like, the business is small. It's all intermingled. It's all... It doesn't matter if you make mistakes. Hello. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. We're going to have a different guest on every week. Stay tuned at the end and we'll give you a little teaser of who's on the next episode. So don't miss that. Now back to Ben Forster. You're, you're now working in the West End. You're mm-hmm. in La Cava. And there are a sequence of really great credits that follow after that between Grease and Thriller before the Juice Curry Superstar thing happens. So what about the times when you weren't doing those really impressive things? There are gaps in that sequence of events. Yeah, yeah. What were you doing in, in that period and how proactive were you? There was probably there's a, like a four or five year gap in my CV where I was trying to get a record deal. I was working with writers. I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning and traveling to Manchester to work with a writer for a day and traveling back. And when, when I get to a decision of whether or not I go need to get a job in a, a shop I just think, well, I could go and sing in a pub with a guitar. And over them five years, I was singing and songwriting, but I was just doing gigs every night in a pub. And actually, I was making more money than I'd ever earned. Did you have a record deal? I had a record deal um, with an independent label, but I was about to sign a really big record deal. And, um, and the guy that was looking after that, it's a really complicated, long story. He was also managing or looking after Amy Winehouse and um, Paloma Fifth. And Amy left him to move to someone else and he kind of got fired so it just all fell apart because of Amy's decision really that's how that kind of chapter closed the first performance of Superstar at the O2 Arena yeah is it true that at the interval the lyrics to Gethsemane were changed yeah that's true. Obviously, it's a huge... There was just such a massive amount of pressure. There was a huge open at night. There was a boat of stars sailed down the Thames to the O2. People arrived by helicopter. It was just crazy. <laughs> You've done, already done Act 1. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence Connor, the director, comes into the dressing room. Yeah. And he said, I've just had an email back from Tim. Tim Rice. Like, Tim Rice, yeah. And obviously, there's a very famous line in Gethsemane, which people misinterpreted sometimes if it wasn't sung with clarity. Um... <laughs> which was, God, thy will is hard. And I think that the thought it might be a nice opportunity just to change the lyric. You must have felt a bit like, come on, man, you've had 30 years to change this. Yeah, I just suddenly questioned, like, is my diction that bad? (laughs) I'm doing it because I sound really bad. I just can't sing it clearly enough. Um, I don't know, I didn't know whether to take it personally or not, but the new lyric was lovely. Um, Instead of singing, God, thy will is hard... Um, can you sing God thy will be done take your only son and how did you react to that it kind of probably good I mean it probably took my mind off of it to be fair mm. um, Superstar is a massive hit uh, you rehearsed for it in America and it's cancelled where were you when it was cancelled I was in New Orleans 
um, in a rehearsal room. We were that far in rehearsals. You get to that point where you take your shoes off and you've got bare feet and you're kind of throwing each other around. And um, How close to opening was this? I think maybe five days. And, yeah, I mean, it was just literally... I mean, we were... I was on my knees acting, singing with Judas. And the general manager came in and just said, can we have a break for a second? I need to talk to Lawrence. And I immediately knew. And when Lawrence walked out, everyone else carried on really normal. And I was looking at the door thinking, oh, my God, it's cancelled. It's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And I went out to go to the bathroom and I saw Lawrence with his head in his hands talking to Steve in the cafe. And then the walk back in and Steve said, look, I need to sit you down. I need to, we need to chat. The two is not going to happen. We, we don't know how it's come to this, but it has. And we, it was a really weird thing. Cause we, Lawrence was like, so do we stop rehearsing? And we're like, yeah, we just go home. It was so weird. So what, what was the aftermath of that moment? What, what actually we all start crying because I think everyone had, everyone was really excited and committed to it. Even the new people like Brandon and Johnny Rotten, who is not my sort of person, Johnny. I didn't know whether he was, actually, is the, the right thing to say. But we really connected in the few days before when we started rehearsing. And I think he really respected what I was doing in the room. And I really respected what he was doing. And he was absolutely in tears. He was, he was gutted, you know, because he wanted to experience it. It was, it's magical to be able to do something like that in an arena and do something of that magnitude in America and all that stuff. So, you know, it was a really, really terrible moment. Some weird thing, like the, some weird psyche happens and it's like paranoia. I was like, oh my God, everyone's going to be laughing that I'm not doing it and everyone's going to blame me and everyone's going to think this. And, you know, actually it wasn't anything to do with me and I'm sure no one thought that at all. But at the time you go, oh my God, this is just the most embarrassing thing. Is it, have you ever felt that in the course of your career? No. You know what, I think I just want to do something else. I've had enough of all this with the um, ups and downs. With yeah, I mean, there was, for instance, right before the competition, I mean, I had done the original cast of Thriller, but I just couldn't get seen for anything after. And I don't think I had a bad agent. I think my agent was good. You know, I don't think I would have been seen for Phantom of the Opera, for instance. And that's quite frustrating. And I remember, do, I remember getting to a point, maybe in like 2010, 2011, where I was like, maybe I should just move on to something else. Because it was, it's hard to get into that group of people that constantly get the jobs. And it's not a bad thing on any of their uh, things. You know, but the amazingly talented people like Ramin and Oliver Thompson and Killian and all those people, you know, they, it's hard to get into the room competing with them people when it's a favourite 12 people, for, for instance. So I is think. show business a game you have to learn to play? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think talent does shine at the end it's a human thing that you go who would be good at playing this part oh my god him i saw him last year in this amazing production and of course it's someone that we all know because they've been in a fabulous show and been nominated for an award or you know so of course they want all these successful people already there and it's just picking from a team of favorite people it's hard to get to stand with them did you audition for any roles before superstar which you were unsuccessful getting which since have come crawling back I mean, there's definitely, like, things like that that have happened. <laughs> when I wrote that and question, I did think, nice. I, wonder how, I wonder how comfortable you'll <laughs> be answering that. I won't push you any further. There's all, you know what the thing is? Of course, you know, it's a business. Sure, business, right? It's business. <laughs> if you can make someone money, people are going to want you to be in it. Dude, you've, you've been playing pretty iconic roles of late. 
you know, Steve Balsamo doing the Gethsemane, there's Ted Neely doing um, Jesus uh, as well. And then you've also got um, Will Ferrell's Elf. Yeah. And now you're going to go on and do another one. Yeah. You know, you're going to do the Phantom. That must be a pressure. It is a pressure. And I think that my next job after Phantom has to be something new. The people can't compare me to because as much as it's a nice pressure, I just feel like you can never really 100% do your own things. You know, Jesus Christ Superstar, I was playing it for Lawrence, the director, and I was playing it for Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's not always necessarily what you would always want to do. You know, you're taking direction as part of our job. Um, but obviously, when you play an iconic role like that, they're always going to compare you to their favourite person. You know, so... F- doing Buddy, it's like a terrifying thing because Will Ferrell is a world superstar that makes hundreds of millions of pounds to do these funny parts. And he is that because there's not many people like Will Ferrell. That's why he is so successful. You know, that's a pressure, absolutely. Um, But I am... I'm looking for something new. Is it a case of just boxing yourself off and going, well, look, this is what I've got, so take it. And I think that's always the way... what I'll do with Phantom is what I've done with everything else. You know, it's just rely on what's written and what is there for Phantom is toxic and scary and a bit weird and beautiful at the same time. You know, so there's so much to play for the Phantom. Unless it's for your director or the writer, you can't play it for anyone else. That's the thing. Has Andrew given you any advice for it? I mean, obviously you, you've built a relationship with him through the Superstar process. Yeah, I mean, Andrew was really clear. I think the reason why he likes me and respects me as a performer is because I do do things honestly. Because I think the understanding of the greater effect that you can get from, you know, less is more sometimes is is a better thing. And I think he just wants me to do Phantom honestly and, like, my version, really. What advice would you give to anyone who would wants to work inside the West End? I think that the main thing that anyone needs to get past is just how to do an audition. And I think it's a thing that loads of people do wrong. And I think I did it wrong. And I do do it wrong still. I'm not saying that I'll be perfect. What kind of things are you talking about? You know, weird, just weird behaviour. Coming in, trying to be funny, trying to act really cool, trying to be the crazy one. Just be yourself. People just want some... It's so easy to see when someone is acting or someone is just being natural. I just think lose all your inhibitions. Just be yourself. You're either going to get the part or you're not. Just little things. It's a little things about your body language, the way you look and, you know... That's it. I think you've just got to be yourself when you go and represent yourself. Thank you so much for talking to us. All right. Um, I have to say, um, I've seen Elf a couple of times. I, was, I like to see it in Dublin last year and this year. It's a brilliant musical. It's almost like a separate thing from the film. It's a brilliant family Christmas show. And anyone listening to this, if it's still on or if it goes on in the future, I highly recommend uh, popping to see it. The music's brilliant. Mm, I, I think it's subtle. I do. It's it, it. If it wasn't Christmas themed, I think it's a strong enough show to run all year. Absolutely, I do too. It's such a shame that it is a holiday show. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. There were terrible questions. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Cheers, man. A big thank you to Ben Forster for taking the time to chat to us. We also have a couple of thank yous to do to two other superstar castmates. Uh, first of all, Mr. Chris Moyles. Chris has given us a huge amount of help and support with making this podcast happen. If you haven't already done it, download the Chris Moyles Show podcast from Radio X. It's on iTunes. It's top of the chart nearly every week to so go and find it. Also, Mr. Tom Parsons. Tom played Peter in Superstar and he made our sexy roaring rock jingles. So check him out on Spotify. He's got some amazing music out. Tom, spelt T-H-O-M, Parsons. 
check him out. While you're plugging everybody else, I'm going to plug our first two episodes. <laughs> episode one was with Tim Minchin. Episode two was with Killian Donnelly. They're fantastic episodes. So go and have a listen to them if you've not done already. Or make your life easier and subscribe. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode. But before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first, click on any of our adverts for Amazon to access their site. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback on any of your purchases as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. And now, as promised, we have a clip from our next episode with the West End legend, Barry James. Well, I've never played Romeo anyway, you think, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I, I'm, uh, I, I would play, um, I, I play the sort of character stuff and have played really character stuff all my life, apart from maybe Seymour. I did the original Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors, which was 500 years ago as well, but that was the nearest thing to, I suppose, my age at the time that I've ever done because normally I'm a lot older. I mean, Tenardier, I, I was quite young when I did Tenardier and that was a much older character. But it's quite exciting. Yeah. Because they're not like me at all. If you wish to quote or share any of the content from inside the West End, please ensure you state the source as Ben Morris and Rob Copeland's Inside the West End podcast. Thank you.